intubation is a very high-risk procedure. If you paralyze them, am I going to take away everything that they have that's keeping them alive? Our utilization of RSI medications can also contribute to physiologic derangements. The RV failure is the Winnebago to hell. This is what's happening. This is why they're coming to your ER. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, and I'm so happy that you are joining us for this podcast. This month, we are going to be welcoming back a voice you've heard before in prior podcasts, but it may have actually been more than a year now that we're well into and hopefully coming to the end here of COVID-19. We haven't had Dr. Ken Butler, our airway expert, our airway guru, on in quite some time, and there was a recent article published in Anastasia and analgesia on the physiologically difficult airway and there is no one better that I thought could take us through this document these consensus recommendations for the physiologically difficult airway from the Society for Airway Management than Ken Butler. So Ken thanks so much for joining us back again here on CCPE. I'm so happy to have you back. How have you been over the past year? First of all Michael thank you. Just a hello to all your listeners. I've been fine thank you. I think we're all have learned so much about hypoxia secondary to our COVID patients. And I think we can also put that into some of these categories that this article mentions. So yeah, I'm fine. Thank you again. Thanks for having me back. Well, like I said, there's no one better, no expert airway guru to talk about this physiologically difficult airway consensus document than you. And just to get things started, what do the authors do? Lead author is actually Rebecca Cornus, and there's some other emergency medicine and critical care physicians on this document, but they set a nice background in that over 2 million ED visits each year in the United States get admitted to the intensive care unit. And it would come as no surprise to any of us listening that intubation and subsequently initiation of mechanical ventilation is a fairly common procedure that we perform almost daily in our emergency departments across the U.S. But we also understand that intubation is a very high-risk procedure, and some patients unfortunately develop peri-intubation hypotension, and a smaller amount develop peri-intubation cardiac arrest. And in many cases, physiologic derangements of these critically ill patients drive these risks of peri-intubation, hypotension, and cardiac arrest. And these physiologic derangements hamper or impair our ability to adequately pre-oxygenate someone, maintain oxygenation during intubation, and help our patients tolerate the transition from negative to positive pressure ventilation. In addition, our utilization of RSI medications can also contribute to physiologic derangements and increase potentially the risk for one of these disastrous peri-intubation complications. So what was this article? There is a Society for Airway Management and they had a special projects committee that developed the recommendations that they included within this article really ultimately to improve the safety of intubating patients who have these physiologic derangements, the safety of airway management in physiologically difficult patients. And that's what we're going to have Ken take us through. Now, the authors did a great job in sort of compartmentalizing this into several big buckets. Hypoxemia as a physiologic derangement, 
hypotension and some recommendations regarding improving that prior to intubation. And then they deal with some very important special circumstances, the patient with RV failure, severe metabolic acidosis, and then the neurologically injured patient. So Ken, enough talking for me. Let me turn things over to you and let's tackle the first concept of hypoxemia as a physiologic derangement and things we can do to improve that peri-intubation. You bet, Mike. So again, I like the article. There's five big categories that the authors speak about, and let's go through the first one, such as hypoxia. So I think if anything for me came positive out of the COVID pandemic, we've seen what high-flow nasal cannula can do. And some of us have probably used it, but not used it as much as we have currently. In the past, it kind of stayed there, was a little peripheral, maybe with some of respiratory techs and some ED doctors that listen to your podcast, but now it's really been in the forefront. And the reason why I brought that to light, please, because he mentions that. So we'll start with this. Obviously, the nasal cannula non-rebreather, we talk about this, and this seems to be the standard, if you will, to put somebody on 100%. They need at least three to five minutes or eight good volume breaths to help them do this washout to give this kind of buffer when we make patients apneic. But I like this statement that's referenced in the article, and you need to really hear what it says physiologically. And what it's saying is that apneic oxygenation will not rescue inadequate pre-oxygenation, meaning that, grant you, we're going to make the patient apneic and ride this little bit of time to pass the tube, but if we didn't pre-oxygenate them well enough, we're still going to be in peril. And that's a key piece of this puzzle. Just putting somebody on a high flow or a nasal cannula and not thinking physiologically is not going to buy you enough time. So we need to do as much as we can to oxygenate the patient. And he talks about that in here. He talks about high flow nasal cannula. I happen to like that. Patients today, some of them cannot tolerate a mask on their face, such as non-invasive pressure ventilation, right? CPAP, BiPAP, right? The high flow gives us an increase in an expiratory volume and decreases the respiratory rate. It makes the work of breathing kind of so much more minimal. It really helps these patients out. And they're getting a little bit of a peep at the same time. So you're almost in a win-win box of starting somebody with high-flow nasal cannula if you need to. So let's just back up. You're doing that with a washout, putting a non-rebreather on, putting the nasal cannula on to ride the apneic wave, if you will. But you may want to think about using high-flow nasal cannula, which you can also do during intubation. doesn't interfere with the oral airway and keeping them on that. And they talk about that. I happen to like that. Inhaled vasodilators, he referenced, or they referenced to I don't see them in our department. I can only speak of where we work. But my question is that, one, where are they? And two, would they be ready? So this is in reference to nitrous oxide and so forth. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about RV failure. But I think it sounds good, but I just haven't seen it. My generation would say, is it ready for primetime players? I'm not quite sure yet. And I've talked to our colleagues in critical care in reference to some of these when it comes to decreasing the afterload on RV failure patients. And I don't think we're there quite yet, but I happen to like it. Putting somebody in an upright position, I think, is still key. You can look at airway articles, and there always seems to be one that kind of contradicts something that is positive. But I think that sitting someone up benefits their physiological inhalation or their drive respiratory-wise, helps us wash out, open up the FRC. And if you're doing obese patients, which most of us are, it's very, very helpful. So I think that still becomes dogma, if you will, or standard of care. I like this reference. We talk about the agitated and combative patients, meaning are they pharmacologically compliant? I like that word. 
meaning that you may need to put somebody down who is severely agitated for whatever reason, head injury, medications that are on drugs. We have all these street drugs that can cause severe hypoxia and agitation at the same time. So using whatever your go-to is, I believe most communities are still using ketamine for those patients. I think that that's fair, but you cannot pre-oxygenate well if someone's agitated and combative. So you would need some sedational drug that would not alter their airway in disease, if you will. And then last but not least, patients that are profoundly hypoxic, you always think in your back burner, do I need to do an awake intubation? Meaning that if you paralyze them, am I going to take away everything that they have that's keeping them alive, losing that upper airway tone, and then making them crash? And I think that we don't think of that as much as we should. And I'll just speak for myself, training residents. So for me, just to back up in the whole scenario, that's where when we use this RSI checklist, and for me, it's a verbal timeout to not only go through all the equipment and drugs, but to say, here are my plans, plan A, plan B, plan C. Everybody has heard that in the room. Everything is there for those plans. And it kind of facilitates a much more smoother intubation. So I'm a big fan of doing that before someone is paralyzed or not paralyzed. Ken, that was super helpful. Let me just have a few follow-up statements and then questions for you. I think the authors do a very nice job in highlighting that hypoxemia is a critical physiologic derangement that markedly increases someone's risk of peri-intubation, cardiovascular collapse, or decompensation, and that really we should be making every effort to maximally pre-oxygenate patients. You alluded to the fact that getting them on high flow two for at least three minutes or at least eight vital capacity breaths just to get a minimum pre-oxygenation. Now, in terms of walking patients up, they do a good job in walking patients up in terms of the degree of pre-oxygenation. They do a good job in explaining essentially hypoxemic respiratory failure and the contributions of VQ mismatch as well as shunt and potentially starting with non-rebreather at flush rate. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on non-rebreather at flush rate, a bag valve mask with PEEP valve then moving to high-flow nasal cannula, and then ultimately to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation as methods to adequately pre-oxygenate patients. And then along those lines, I think they dropped a nice pearl that in terms of apneic oxygenation, really not using that capnography cannula that we're used to because it doesn't achieve that high flow rate that we're looking for during apneic oxygenation. So quick thoughts from you on moving from non-rebreather flush rate to BBM with a PEEP valve, do you use that or more so move to high-flow nasal cannula or even non-invasive positive pressure ventilation? Mike, the question that I always have in reservation when we talk about non-invasive, if you do that, you have the potential to drop somebody's preload. And you know that since we work together, our patients are so sick, whether they're septic or whatever the underlying problem is, I hear, but this is a fine line we walk, whether... We're trying to get the O2 up without dropping the pressure at the same time. But for me, the high-flow nasal cannula is a little bit of a somewhat of buffer. I get a little bit of a peep. I'll get more washout, but I'm not giving them that much pressure to drop their preload. So again, each case is different. No one fits in one box, but that's the only reservation I have. Otherwise, I think this is great to do that. No question. If this is a non-pulmonary and non-cardiac player, Non-invasive is key. Love it. Been out there. Helps all of us. No argument. But again, watch their pressure. Right. Well, I love the pearl as well, pre-oxygenating them in an upright position. And the document does give a nod to 
delayed sequence intubation, this DSI concept, dissociative doses of ketamine. Now they do highlight, and I think it's very important to reiterate that you want to probably use small doses of ketamine if you are someone that includes DSI in your practice and you have to have everything ready to intubate because you've certainly had some people that even this smaller dose of say 10 to 20 milligrams of ketamine can make them completely apneic and then you're rushing to get them intubated. They also reference dexmedetomidine. Any thoughts on that, Ken? We don't really use that that much. I think that's because each facility, as you know, is different. I'm not that well-versed and I'm just not that comfortable because I don't use it that often. So I don't want to say yay or nay to that. I think it's great if you have that ear facility. And again, drugs that you are comfortable with are always should be at your bedside. I don't argue that. And one backup, Mike, please, that you mentioned on the DSI. DSI is wonderful if the patient is just acidotic with no other underlying abnormalities. And that's a fine box to fit in. And giving them that sub-dissociative dose of ketamine, take the edge off, help ventilate and blow off some CO2 is wonderful. But again, our patients have so many comorbidities, it's tough to put them into one box. But if they're just acidotic and you need to blow off some CO2, which is the best way to do it, because we've learned in the data that an amphibicarb really does nothing. It may make us feel good, but it doesn't really do anything on a cardiac or a metabolic standpoint of the patient. Then the DSI is wonderful. So I'll leave it at that. All right. Well, let's transition from hypoxemia to another, probably one of the more important physiologic derangements, and that is hypotension. Now, there's been lots written and published on peri-intubation, the incidence of peri-intubation hypotension, say, in the emergency department, in the OR, in critically ill patients in the ICU. Unfortunately, there really isn't a consensus definition for what peri-intubation hypotension is. What are the thresholds for defining it? And so as a result, you know, the incidence varies across all those publications. Perhaps upwards of a little over 40% may be complicated or intubations complicated by peri-intubation hypotension. And when we talk about the most feared complication of intubation, peri-intubation cardiac arrest, incidence varies from about a half a percent up to perhaps 5%. So Ken, kind of walk us through your approach, your thoughts on peri-intubation hypotension, sort of addressing this physiologic derangement that may lead to worse outcomes. I have to give a shout out to our ultrasound gurus and teams that have taught me so much over the years, because I honestly think if you have an ultrasound in your department, and whether you have ones that go to your iPhone or ones that are the size of a huge machine, they clearly give you an idea of what the patient's cardiac status is. And I think we get better and better at reading that. So what I'm saying, please, is that I like to know what someone's EF is or just get a visual of it. We get an idea of what their vascular status is or their volume status is. And it gives me a little bit of idea of where I'm going to go with this. So I would like to say, I'd like to ultrasound all these people, if that's possible, before you even start the ball rolling. So let's back up. It's interesting, this article, and I give them a shout out because shock index has been in EMS's literature for decades, and somehow it sits there and no one remembers it or even uses it over the radio. But EMS looked at patients that had significant shock indexes that were elevated and their rate of intubation, and it's actually pretty high. So looking at the numbers quickly, you have some determination of how sick the patient is or how how their vascular status is going to determine if they're going to drop their blood pressure once you intubate them. So please use it. It's a simple math calculation. For me, I think having norepi in the room and ready to go, the line is purged, is always a safer bet to do. When push dose pressures hit the immediate, it was wonderful. If that's all you have, I get that. 
But remember, push-dose pressures have some complication, maybe the wrong dosage, maybe the wrong concentration, but more importantly, this kind of peak and trough of the blood pressure. If you're using a drip, such as the norepi drip, then you can ride the wave better than you could if someone was going to peak and trough with a push-dose pressure. Again, if that's all you have. Volume status we have to worry about. Again, I have to go back to the ultrasound piece because if there's RV and you're altering fluids, that may be a bad thing to do. We've looked at this and saying maybe fluids are not the first thing to do in a massive PE. The same thing with someone with severe pulmonary hypertension. So again, if you can use the ultrasound as a window to what's going on on a cardiac level, I think that, that helps you. The article references atomidate and ketamine, and it's interesting I'm a fan of both of those drugs. I think the trend is ketamine for everything. But remember, please, ketamine in the literature has caused cardiac arrest. I love the drug, but it may be because you get the patients at the end of their line with this catecholamine surge that they're riding on. You give them the ketamine, you squeeze that adrenal, and that's all that's left. So if you were unsure and worried, accommodate because it's hemodynamically neutral, would never cause that. Now, it doesn't mean it's always right or wrong, but I think as a safer hemodynamic drug in this peri-intubation autonomy, it may just be a little bit safer. All right, so just a few follow-up questions for you, Ken. Now, in terms of the shock index, I love that pearl. What number are you looking at sort of as a threshold above which you're concerned for this patient? Well, I love it, Mike. I learned this from my EMS people that I've been hopefully educating for years, right? We all say a GCS of less than eight intubate, and they also say a shock index greater than 0.8 they worry about. So I like that. That kind of keeps that simple number in my head. I can do the math at the bedside, and I think that's a great way of approaching this. So 0.8 or greater, I'd worry about. Outstanding. And, you know, I completely agree with your thoughts about vasopressor infusions, perhaps even getting started with the infusion heading into intubation for those that have a really borderline or low MAP or quite high shock index. You know, in terms of push-dose pressors, you and I practice in a place where we have ED pharmacists. We have lots of resources that can actually get that infusion done really quickly in real time and we can get it going. But there may be some providers that are in locations where they're not easily accessible to get that norepinephrine infusion started. And for those providers, in the literature, push-dose pressors have either been epi or phenylephrine. Would you recommend or do you have a preference if you had to use a push-dose presser at least until you got the infusion made up, delivered to the ED, and started infusing in the patient? I think for me, if I had to choose one, it would be the epi because we get more bang for the buck, if you will. Uh, the so let's get back to phenylephrine just being the alpha agent may not give me enough squeeze that I need with the epi. So in most scenarios, again, and if your listeners don't have access to an ultrasound, I think epi would give you more benefit. And if you don't to use a push-dose pressure, just do it like you would check blood on a blood transfusion patient, right? The dogma is that you check the blood three times before you administer it. I would check the dose and the concentration diligently before I push it to make sure it's correct. All right. Well, very, very helpful discussion on hypotension. These are some great pearls, Ken, thus far on hypoxemia as well as hypotension. Let's dive into those three special circumstances that the article and the committee highlights in this document. And I think the first one is one of your favorite topics to talk about, and that's intubation of the patient with RV failure. Take us through your pearls. 
I think to have some levity, the RV failure is the Winnebago to hell. That's all I'm going to say because you really walk this fine line. And I have wonderful cardiologists at Maryland, and Michael knows them well. And I've gone through cases with them. And when the patient has severe pulmonary hypertension and in heart failure, it's almost a lose-lose box. These people are almost at death's door and very difficult to resuscitate. But without the fear factor, let's go forward. Please remember this. In patients that have known pulmonary hypertension, if the patient can speak or you have access to their medical record, hypoxia and hypercarbia cause an increase in constriction of the pulmonary vascular bed. So they're going to make this pulmonary hypertensive patient worse. That's easy for me to say in physiology, but this is what's happening. This is why they're coming to your ER. They're hypoxic or hypercarbic. So those two make the pulmonary system clamp down even further and exacerbate the hypertension. So please be careful with that. You're kind of, as I said, in this lose-lose box, we've talked about severe hypertension and also the PE patients. So it changes our fluid management. If I was at the bedside and I clearly knew somebody had severe pulmonary hypertension and is very sick, I would do two things. I would have the dobutamine at the bedside. That's really the best overall drug in these cases. And why is that? It reduces the right and left heart afterload. Epi in itself isn't going to do that. And it's really the preferred catecholamine of choice in someone with severe pulmonary hypertension to keep them alive. And then they'll probably need the epi which also would be great, or the norepi, either one. Norepi may be better just to get a little more vascular constriction out of the two to keep that patient's heart at a place that it can ride through the intubation. Now, that's easy for me to say. A lot of us aren't familiar with dobutamine or even starting it or maybe haven't had it since we did our critical care rotation. But for me, when a patient comes in with severe pulmonary hypertension, I'm thinking of those drugs. Milurone is over on one side of the puzzle. People that are much more versed in cardiology than I am will talk about that. There's even data on inhaled administration of that drug. I've not done that, so I would be uncomfortable with it, but I still think of those drugs in these cases. So why are these so bad for some of your listeners if they don't remember that? These people are so preload dependent. The RV is the weakest of the ventricle. It's profoundly dilated. It's ischemic to start due to its stretch. If I alter their volume status or their intrathoracic pressure, I'm going to make it more ischemic and they're going to cardiac arrest and fail. So these are very tough cases. The more that you're prepared and set up and thinking through that physiology, the better they're going to be. And be careful about intubating them. Again, this is like the pulmonary embolism patient. And I've said this to our residents and I think it finally makes sense. It's funny, I asked a resident the other night, I go, on the medical examiners, death certificate. What is the cause of death of a massive PE? And I got all these answers about hypoxia. It's not. It's cardiovascular collapse. And that's kind of what's happening in the same picture of the patient with severe pulmonary hypertension. You've got to salvage the heart and give it as much benefit as you can for the medications that you can. And again, the hypoxia or intubation may potentially do them more harm. So be careful. Outstanding pearls. And I'm going to have to give you props and subsequent discussions I have if I ever use the phrase Winnebago to hell. Thank you. 
All right. Well, let's round out here with two a little bit smaller sections to complete this paper, these recommendations, and that's on the patient with severe metabolic acidosis and then the neurologically injured patient. And really, under those sections, I don't think it would be any surprise that these two conditions are very high risk of decompensating during airway management. And under metabolic acidosis, Ken, they talk about folks with this high minute ventilation to maintain some semblance of acid-base balance. Those are the patients we should consider for awake intubations to allow them to continue to spontaneously breathe. And then once intubated, thinking about using a spontaneous breathing mode so they can keep up with that high minute ventilation. What are your thoughts on those recommendations? I like it, Mike. So if we could put this patient of severe metabolic acidosis in the box, meaning that their lungs are keeping them alive. So if their lungs are not wet, they're not fibrotic, as in the pulmonary hypertension may be case, and their heart is fine. So let's just back up and say everything is with us except for their pH. Well, those patients, it's tough to match their respiratory rate because, as we know, they're keeping themselves alive by their respiratory rate. And intubating them, there's no button, as we all know, on the vent that says severe DKA, salicylate, what have you, to match that. So I love this case because, to me, this is the most challenging because this is a case for KSI or ketamine sequence intubation, meaning that we give them maybe just a subdissociative dose of ketamine, give enough analgesia and sedation out of that. And if you are like me and happen to like the challenge of passing the tube, the patient is breathing. You have to time passing the tube while the cords are moving and then just put them on pressure support. You will do them a service because I haven't paralyzed them. I haven't lost their respiratory drive. I'm giving them a little bit of a kick with their pressure support, and they're blowing enough CO2 off to keep them alive. And that's really the safest way to do this. I think that you need to just stop and say, it's easy to intubate because usually these people don't have any other cardiac or pulmonary problem. But if you do, you might wind up hurting them significantly. And I think the take-home message for me in understanding all this is that cardiology has taught me over the decades that our heart conducts in a very fine pH window. It doesn't like to be acidotic. Even if you're 20 years old and in DKA, your heart is dysrhythmic or has potential for dysrhythmia because it's beating in such an acidotic environment. And making them chemically apneic from a drug such as automidate or so forth, and then paralyzing them is just going to cause havoc because that little change in pH may just be enough to put them in a cardiac dysrhythmia. So again, I would try to keep them awake KSI them and let them ride their own respiratory drive to keep them alive. Outstanding, Ken. And let's wrap up with the neurologically injured patient, whereby these consensus recommendations state that really pay attention to the CO2 concentration and try to maintain eucapnea or normocapnia during either before, during, or after intubation. Be careful with the selection of your induction agent and try to choose a hemodynamically neutral agent. If possible, position them in a 30 degree upright position to promote CSF drainage or return to the central circulation. And then limit PEEP to promote central venous drainage. Thoughts on these recommendations and your overall pearls for the neurologically injured patient? Sure, Mike. I think the old adjunct to keep them out of the 4-H club, which has been dogma for TBI, right? Hypoxia, hypercarbia, hyperthermia, hypotension. And the most important thing that I say before we even start the discussion is these are the people that you never want to drop their pressure because the brain is unforgiving 
in hypotension in TBI. And it is as simple as that statement is. You can maybe alter somebody's blood pressure in the acidotic patient and so forth, but the brain is non-forgiving, right? It's a compartment syndrome. Those cells are edematous. They don't like to be hypoperfused. So you've got to keep the map up and prevent any dip in their blood pressure. So let's just back up. What you said is so important. So here you want to sit the patient up, right? It's not only just for their functional residual capacity, but help to drain the brain, as neurosurgery would say, to decrease their ICP. So we sit the patient up. I think backing up to the drugs that you use, as we all know, ketamine, we've looked at and it's changed its direction. In the past, it was that it raised ICP. We know it doesn't do that. It actually lowers ICP by increasing cerebral perfusion pressure. So I like that drug in these cases. If you are skittish about ketamine, then you could go to Atomidate, which is clearly hemodynamically neutral. But these cases tend to do well. Why is that usually the heart and the lungs are fine. It's just the traumatic brain injury that's preventing them to protect their airway. And you have time to set up and they usually don't desat. But I cannot stress enough is please do not drop their blood pressure. That's key. We all know there's these databases that look at blood pressures from the field all the way to the OR on patients that have had significant TBI. And any of these dips, whether they're done in the field or with us, can change outcome and cognitive function. So please be careful. Ken, outstanding, really wonderful, wonderful discussion on all these topics from hypoxemia to hypotension now to these three special circumstances. We cannot thank you enough for joining us here once again on the podcast, going through this important article. We're going to have the citation for this article in our handout for this podcast and certainly want you to reach out if you have any questions, any follow-up questions for Dr. Butler or myself, but this is one of those podcasts that I certainly will play many times throughout the course of a year as I'm driving in for a shift, knowing that I'm going to be intubating somebody likely during that shift, that I'm likely going to be encountering some of these physiologic or all of these physiologic derangements and trying to maximize patient's physiology before we actually perform the intubation and perhaps stave off that peri-intubation cardiovascular collapse. So Ken, really great job. Thanks so much again. Can't be more appreciative of you joining us here on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. All right. Well, that's going to bring us to a close. We are right on time here. Once again, just send us any questions that you have through our email on the website. Once again, this is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. Looking forward to talking to you on our very next podcast. Bye for now.